Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but do not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, this morning... We have opportunity to praise our Lord, and I hope that awakens us. I hope that the time that we have before the Word this morning illumines our mind and helps us to understand a little bit more of the heartbeat of God. We're without a lapel this morning, so I'm going to speak a little louder, maybe, so everybody in the back row can hear. Good, I'm getting a thumbs up. We're we're, we're able to hear back there. Good. We want to make sure that you can hear the word. 
If you have your Bibles, hopefully they're open to the book of Romans, chapter 14. This morning, in the time that we have, Lord willing, we'll be covering verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. You know, as, as we begin this morning, I got to thinking about how we relate to other people. You know, as you look at the Scripture and as you see the Scripture, oftentimes as you read it, hopefully you read it in such a way to not only see what it says, what it said to the audience to whom it was written, but then also you, I believe, are are quick to apply these words to your own life, to your own experience. Why do the very same thing? as I'm planning and preparing a message. And as many of you know, that's, that entails not only what I do here in Light at Hope in Christ Church, but also uh, what I do as a, as a referee. And so I hope you don't get, I hope you don't get too bogged down with that. I, I, I do believe, though, that in the midst of our experiences, the Lord gives us some great understanding for what we're doing in the sphere that we are in and how the Scripture applies to our experience. I see it applying all the time. You know, this whole idea of relating to people. It was brought back to my attention again as I was observing the ending of a game. Just a minute or two to go, close score... There's a foul, and after the foul, the player who was fouled turns around and shoves the other player. One of the officials comes and calls the game. And I observed that, and I watched that, and I was applying the principle. See, there's a principle here that I want to bring to your attention. And the principle is this. Are we calling it quits, or are we going to administer the rules of the game, so to speak? Because you see, really, as an official, call the foul and get a technical foul. And let's administer the rules of the game. It's easy to call it quits. You know, I got to thinking about the principle as applied to marriage. How many people today have done that very thing? It's easier to call it quits than to apply the rules of Scripture to our marriage. The roles and responsibilities set forth. This for better, for worse vow that we take before the Lord. Oh, what about the body of Christ? Are you administering the rules God has set forth in His Word as a part of the body of Christ? Or has it been your track record to call it quits? And that can come in different forms. Calling it quits can can mean just quitting attending that particular local church. But it could also mean quitting on a specific relationship within the body. See, it's seemingly quite easy 
and simple to do it that way. But you know, what we see in the Word is that there are differences. These differences abound in the body of Christ. And yet the biblical record, doesn't it show us, doesn't it record for us, and call the believer in Christ to unity amidst diversity? We saw that in Romans 12. One body, one faith, one Lord, one Holy Spirit. And we see that in Ephesians 4. And we see this one gospel that Jude speaks of that we're to contend for. So, a couple questions to consider here. Is that what happens when believers in Christ start upholding the banner of unity? Let's think about that for just a moment. You know, it sounds good on the surface, perhaps, until you begin to see the driving motivation behind it. What do you mean? Is it unity according to what the Bible teaches? Or unity according to my way of doing things? You see, there is a difference. When the flag for unity begins to wave, is it a genuine call for brethren to keep the unity of the Spirit? Or is it unity according to, and you fill in the blank, of your name. You see, because in that instance, unity is spoken of, but the motivation for the brethren to be in unity is predicated on doing things man's way or else. Walking in unity with one another is practiced in love. That's what we read in the scriptures. It's not a my way or the highway approach. Or let's ask this question. What happens when believers in Christ start upholding the diversity banner? We talk about the unity banner. What about the diversity? What happens when the differences in the body take center stage in Christ's church? And you know, it's pretty clear when you look at the scriptures, differences are spoken of, are they not? We can look at the gifts, the spiritual gifts in Corinthians chapter 12, they're held up, they're even celebrated. Different parts of the body we see are needed. Different parts of the body are brought forward. We can't all be eyes, we can't all be nose, we can't all be toes. We have to be different. And that's a good thing. Why then? Does there seem to be so much groaning and chirping toward another brother in the church today? Simply because he's different. Not because he's lost, standing apart from Christ, but simply different. You see, Paul takes the entirety of Romans 14. I hope we see this. This really was an eye-opener for me. He takes the entirety of Romans 14 and part of chapter 15 to reveal, I believe, an ugliness in the body of Christ. The believer in Christ, while he is born again, saved, he's justified, he's nevertheless operating in disobedience toward the Lord in these matters pertaining to walking with one another. Or, if we were to say it in short, he's sinning. 
Let's call it what it is. You see, walking with one another along the road, there's bound to be some challenges, there's bound to be some trials, bound to be setbacks, bound to be some joys, bound to be some losses. Walking with one another along the road is not judging them because they've fallen down, i.e., Job's friends. Nor is it questioning their salvation when trials come into their lives. Oh, you just must not be a believer. You see, walking along the road with that other brother, with that other sister, it's putting on, as we saw at the end of 13, it's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's weeping with those who weep. It's manifesting a love without hypocrisy. It's giving preference to my brother in Christ. It's continuing steadfastly in prayer for him, coming alongside him to encourage him, to comfort him from this word. Of comfort. You see, Paul is, is writing, from what we understand, this, this book of Romans from, from Corinth. And when you read 1 Corinthians, you begin to see quickly that Corinth had some real problems in their assembly. Didn't they? You begin to notice some of the differences among members in that body. And yet, Paul seems to write, calling them to take their eyes off self and to fix their eyes on Christ, who is the head of the church. You see, the issue for Paul here in Romans, it's not simply advocating a right way of doing things. In fact, if you notice, Paul does not put a stake in the sand. I think Kevin spoke of this last week. Uh, advocating issues, where to stand on issues pertaining to diet and, and where to stand on issues pertaining to certain days. But he is calling the church to awaken out of sleep on matters of practice within the body. The call is to see unity in accordance to the word of God with an understanding that there are issues of liberty as well, whereby one believer might operate differently than the brother or sister sitting down the row from you. The instruction here in the text before us is not, it is not about setting that particular brother straight. But instead, I believe it's learning how to love them in the midst of the differences and learning how to make a right judgment. To see your own sin, perhaps, before casting any judgments upon your fellow man. Jesus speaks of that very thing, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5. You know, the church has taken a lot of hits, if you will, throughout the years. And a lot of that has to do with the people that make up Christ's church. Have you noticed that? And, and I know that from time to time there have been 
verbal assaults on Christ and, and who Christ is. But oftentimes it seems the criticism of the church is not centered necessarily on Christ, but Christ's representatives. Why is that? I believe in part it has to do with the very thing that Paul is addressing here in Romans 14 and on into 15. How do you relate to those within the body of Christ? How do you handle differences that crop up in the body? Side note, we're not talking about people in the body who hold to different views of understanding of who Christ is. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. Core gospel issue, that's not what we're talking about. In what manner do you relate to your brother to resolve these differences? Is it a come to my side or else I'm done with you? Or do you try the bludgeoning persuasion approach? <laughs> where, where that other brother is, is bombarded with this with rounds of verbal ammunition, if you will. And you're either going to come to own his view of the matter or you're going to be seen, you're going to be cast off in his eyes if you don't come around to his way of thinking. You see, the approach to differences in the body needs to be placed under the banner and authority of Christ as head of the church. It's so important that we keep that in perspective. Any actions that you take as a part of the body here at Hope in Christ must be taken under careful direction of Christ who has been granted all authority in heaven and on earth. Perhaps it can be said that a greater fear of God and a lesser view of self would be in order here. See, the actions taken toward your brother, the words spoken toward your brother, the thoughts and the motivations toward your brother, they collectively, let's pull them all together, they collectively count. All of them. The message in Romans 14 and 15, this is a message that needs to be heard. The church needs to hear this word. See, to be a part of the church means to be a part of one another. It's inescapable to have to deal with people. You cannot skirt relating to people. You know, you've heard it said, you know, things would be great if I just didn't have to deal with people. Well, it doesn't work that way in the church, nor does it work that way outside the church. Our life is about how we deal with people. Some of us do that well and some of us don't do that as well. But I believe all of us are in the boat together and that we're all works in progress in dealing with people.
And perhaps this morning you've come to listen to the word. Perhaps this morning you've come to listen to the songs. Maybe you've come to participate in the Lord's Supper. You've come to listen to the prayers being offered up for those in the body. And yet, perhaps you quickly navigate away from having to deal with other people. This ought not be in the church. This morning, as we look at Romans 14... I believe a very simple structure outline here for these few verses. The Lord has given this to me in five. We can break this down here in five different parts here. The first part we would look at here in, in verse 10, the first part of verse 10. I'll call 10 verse 10a, the first half of 10. We're going to see two questions. Two questions. And on the heels of those two questions, then secondly, we're going to see one statement of fact. One statement of fact. That's the last part of verse 10. And then verse 11, we're going to see evidence to support the fact. Verse 12, then, we're going to see a repetition of the statement of fact that was given to us at the end of verse 10. But specifically here, we're going to look at the emphasis This personalization aspect is going to be brought out here in verse 12. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then finally, I found it appropriate that it ends this way. Because anytime we're preaching the word, it's important that as we conclude, there is the question, so what? So what? You have this understanding of this text, so what? Now what? What are we going to do with it? Verse 13 tells us exactly what we're to do with it. So that's where we're going. So if we look at Romans 14, first part of verse 10, let's look at these two questions. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Now, to shine just a little bit of light on the original text... The focus here is on the personal pronoun, you. A more literal translation, and maybe perhaps some of your translations bring this out, would be something along this line. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, why do you show contempt for your brother? You see, the first word in both of those questions is the pronoun. And oftentimes in the original, the placement of words is helpful in understanding the writer's intent. So in this particular case, you is placed first to emphasize its importance in the sentence. What's what's called the emphatic use. It brings it out and emphasizes the pronoun in the questions. You! Which then causes us to ask another question. Why would the author desire to place the emphasis upon the pronoun you? Are there any clues in the text that might be helpful to the reader? Well, if we go backwards a verse where Kevin ended last week, for to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he, I'll emphasize that, that 
he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And then we get, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, why do you show contempt for your brother? And see, we need to remember in context, we need to remember that there is a contrast throughout this chapter on the strong and the weak, even in the chapter 15, in the faith. So in, in some way, you could step back and you could look at these two questions and perhaps apply them to both the strong and the weak. And maybe, maybe even seeing it from this perspective to those who are weak in the faith. Why do you judge your brother? To those who are strong in the faith, why do you show contempt? To show contempt, the idea of showing contempt is to make of small account. Why do you show contempt for your brother? You see, it works in both cases. This is not a, a situation where the strong were being judgmental of the weak or the weak were just being judgmental of the strong. Have both of you forgotten that Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living? You see, the context is speaking of believers. Let's be clear. The two questions give us a clue to that. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt to your brother? Speaking of believers in Christ who have been who have been passing judgment on one another. So what we have here is is believers are taking up gavel and pronouncing judgment upon their own brothers. I'd like you just for a moment, consider this picture. The body of Christ over which Christ is the head. Let's get that clear first. And then each part of the body carrying around his or her own individual gavel. And you have your gavel with you. And in the body, that gavel gets used during the gathering, and then the gavel is carried with you in your pocket, and it, and it travels home with you where it gets much use behind the closed walls of your home. You see, pronouncing judgment on someone for doing things a bit differently than you, pronouncing judgment, holding that gavel in hand. The gavel isn't not, it's symbolic of, of, of a rendering a judgment over another, and it carries with it some sense of implied authority, doesn't it? And believers in Christ can take great delight in wielding that gavel for the purpose of rendering judgment Toward a brother. Now, on the heels of the two questions, there's one statement of fact. Okay, look at, look at the remainder of verse 10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, two questions and then a statement of fact. If you look closely at the text, you, you see, I hope, a connection between the two questions and the statement that follows. 
I hope you see that. The connector word for is used to bring the questions and the statement of fact together. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt to your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, why are you judging your brother and showing contempt toward him when we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? That's the fact. If we looked at it simply from a practical standpoint, it makes sense too. Sometimes looking at it from a practical standpoint is helpful. It's not exhaustive by any means, but no doubt it's helpful. And so if we were just thinking practically, isn't there something better you can do with your time than judging your brother? I mean, in light of the days that you've been given here on earth, and in light of the standing before the judgment seat of Christ, which is fact, is judging your brother and showing contempt for your brother, are these good stewardship matters for your time here on earth? Just from a real practical So let's be clear, the context is pointing toward believers standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment, by the way, has to do with, with your works. And a couple other passages here that I'd like to read as, as it pertains to that, that just tie into this idea. But if you look at Corinthians chapter 3, Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Paul says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Ephesians talks about how Christ is the cornerstone, right? Along with the apostles and the prophets. And so 12 there in, in Corinthians 3 says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, capital D, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What sort of work is it? The fire will reveal that. The day will reveal that. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, there's also another passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I begin reading in verse 9. Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present, present in the body or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to the Lord. For, why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. That word terror is the word judgment. Knowing the judgment of the Lord, we persuade men. You see, when we have a right understanding of the judgment of God, one of the results of that, according to what Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 5, is that we're going to be persuaded to go and tell men. Speak to men. Because earlier in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, he's talking about this earthly tent. And this earthly tent, when it's destroyed, how we long for to be further clothed with immortality and not to be found naked. You see, there are some who, sadly, just like Jesus says, Lord, Lord, 
Lord, Lord, didn't I? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do this and this and this? And the Lord's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. You see, there's going to be a judgment. A judgment to come. And you know, the way some believers live, think about this, the way some believers live, you'd think there was a free pass on this one. The living doesn't seem to match the statement of fact that we've just talked about. And we need to personalize this question, and then we need to ask, how about my life? Could someone recognize that you truly believe the statement of fact here in Romans 14? Could someone recognize that you truly believe that statement of fact? But we, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, the text here in Romans 14, it seems to bear witness to a direct link between your judging of other brothers in Christ and the pending reality of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It seems though, perhaps for some of us, that judgment seat of Christ seems so distant. Because it may seem distant in your mind, Therefore, you put it away, the thought, you put it away and set it aside for some other time down the road. The problem with that is that the judgment, the fact of the judgment in Romans 14, about how we're all going to stand for the judgment seat of Christ, the fact of that judgment is intended to make a difference in the present. Isn't it? It's not just something out there in the future to put up here in our mind and say, yeah, we know that. And more specifically, the fact of standing before the judgment seat of Christ is intended to make a difference in how you contextually, Romans 14, and how you interact with people, how you handle differences, how you treat others, especially in the body of Christ. So you have two questions. You have one statement of fact. And now in Pauline fashion, there's evidence to back up the fact. Look at Romans 14, 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. What evidence, church, does Paul put forth? I say it's the best kind of evidence. The scripture. It's the best kind of evidence. You see, Isaiah 45, 23 is where the majority of what we read in 14, 11 of Romans is where that's found. And this particular verse is, is showing that everyone will bow the knee to the Lord, and that everyone will confess the name of Jesus, there's going to be a day. And this evidence will become, church, it will become important in light of the next verse, but for just a moment, I'd like for you to consider something. You know, in the court of law, sometimes you hear this phrase of, 
evidence, certain evidence that's not admitted for various reasons. There's certain evidence that they do not admit, do not allow. And I got to thinking about the book of Romans and how Paul uses the word of God to serve as evidence of the fact here of what he's just mentioned. So we have evidence in a court of law that's not admitted, but we have evidence, Paul, as he writes, that is admitted and ought to be admitted. And as a believer in Christ, this is the evidence we ought to be standing upon. I believe it was Josh McDowell that said that, wrote that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Well, where's that evidence come from? Right here. The truth of the scripture. You see, there seems to be a disconnect among believers in Christ in terms of what they know of Christ and how they take what they know and live it out. Anybody else have a struggle with that from time to time? Huh? We, we, we tend to know some of these things. I'll even go so far as a lot of these things in the scripture. But it's, it's taking the what we know and, and putting feet on it. And walking it. And living it out. You know, it's as though believers are walking around having intellectually embrace the idea of the fact of verse 10b. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Intellectually, we, I believe, have an understanding of that. But operationally, it would appear that in our lives, Christ perhaps there's this big flashing sign that when we really look at believers, there's this flashing sign that says Evidence not admitted. You see, intellectually we know it, but for some reason we fail to take up the sword of the Spirit and put it into play in our lives. This is not a book we open merely on Sunday morning. It's to help us live each day. And it's an encouragement for us. It's a comfort for us to help us each day. We need to be making sure, church, this evidence is admitted every day, all day, all the time, in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces. This is the evidence we go to. You see, your life, perhaps... Maybe you've sensed this. Maybe operating apart from the evidence of the Bible. You might believe. You might believe wholeheartedly that that statement of fact is true. And others like it in the scripture, these statements of fact. You might believe they're true. But why? Why do you believe they're true? I hope that you too Embrace the evidence given to you by the scriptures. And how does that evidence begin? Like so often we've read. For it is written. I ask, do you know what is written?
Do you realize, church, the evidence you hold in your hand? Have you tried to explain the Bible apart from the Bible? If you've been around during our study in the book of Romans, you have been able to witness the Apostle Paul's evidence for his statements of fact. Time and again, where does Paul take his reader after making a statement of fact? To the testimony and the scriptures. That's where he goes. What if you and I, what if we started making a habit to access this word on our own for evidence? What if we made that a pattern in our lives? You see, the Holy Spirit who is in you, if you are a child of God, He will assist you. In fact, the Scripture says that's one of His roles, to remind you of what Christ Himself said. The very words of Christ. What greater evidence, church, is there available to the believer in Christ than the Holy Scriptures? And so, church, the, the, the call there is, is that we must not neglect the Word. We must not on one hand say yes to it, and at the same time in your living, say no. Romans 14.11 points to all people bowing before the Lord and confessing the name of the Lord. But look where Paul goes next here in his teaching. Look at, look at 14.12. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So we have two questions. We have one statement of fact. And then we have evidence to follow. Now what? Well, we have repetition of the statement of fact back in verse 10. But the emphasis you see in verse 10 is for we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice the repetition with a slight twist right here in 12. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. So what's going on here? Well, verse 12 personalizes the statement of fact. I shall have to give word, the word, right, word, logos, when, when it says I give account, it's the word logos, word. I shall have to give word of myself to God. Notice in the text, I will not be responsible primarily for giving an account for my brother, The text says that each of you in Christ shall give account of yourself to God. Now, if you're awaiting a pending judgment from the judge of the world, do you think he wants you spending your time and your energies here judging your brother or showing contempt for your brother? The two questions, going back to the two questions in verse 10. The two questions are asked as a precursor to the statement of fact. The two questions are asked not necessarily to glean an answer per se, but they're asked to bring to light 
the folly of participating in such an act as judging your brother. Why would you do that? So then. That's how that verse begins. So then. I, I just love from a uh, grammar perspective these, these connector words. Because when we really look at the connector words, it helps us see that these verses are tied together. Right? When we talked about the questions and then, for we shall all. And then we see, for it is written. And then now we see, so then. Well, the word there, so then, it, it's really used in such a way to bring about a logical sequence of action. So then, in light of the evidence... After having drawn his evidence from the well of Scripture, Paul says, So then, what do you make of the evidence of Scripture? Paul repeats the statement of fact now, having given the evidence. And he takes the evidence and look what he does. He he narrows the focus for his reader. Please do not think for a moment That you, being a believer in Christ, are exempt from the judgment seat of God. In case you're thinking those thoughts, let me point you to the scripture. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. Each of us. You see, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us. Saying, really, same things, but the focus and the emphasis seems to be from a broad perspective down to narrowing the scope and personalizing that very statement of fact. And so when I consider the personalized nature of Romans 14, 12, I, I immediately consider the profitability of God's word in my life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. And, and I have need at this point then to praise God. But see, when we also consider the personalized nature of Romans 14, 12, it causes me to ask a few other questions. And maybe these are questions that you asked this week as you were reading the text. In what areas specifically am I going to be giving account to God? Does the Bible provide any further information on specific areas, arenas that I'm going to be giving account to God for? And and the answer to that is yes. Let me just give you a few. First of all, you will give account for your words. You'll give account for your words. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. The words that roll out of my mouth Every one of them are fair game in the accounting to come before the Lord. Think about that for just one moment. You know, when I, when I realize that, it makes me want to put into practice all the more the proverb. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. You see, the problem that Paul is addressing in the church at Rome, it's not a specific problem to Rome, is it? 
When you judge your brother, you are oftentimes using words, aren't you? To show contempt for a brother, oftentimes you're using words. The next time you consider passing judgment on a brother, please consider carefully that you will be giving account for your words. But the Bible also tells us that you'll give account for your talents and your gifts. And you see the parable, Matthew 25, how the Lord has blessed you with certain talents and, and spiritual gifts. You're in Christ. And so how are you going to respond to what God has so graciously given to you? You see, these talents and gifts are from God, and they're intended to be used for His purposes that He might get glory through those gifts and talents. Corinthians 12 talks about how the parts of the body are intended to function together and how we need all the parts working together. Ephesians 4 talks about the parts of the body, how they're intended to each one do their work. And in doing so, the body of Christ gets what? Edified, gets built up. Not only will I give account for my words and talents and spiritual gifts, I'll give account for the money that God's enabled me to earn. I'll give account for that. Matthew 6, we see where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. We see that no one can serve two masters, right? We see also the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 8, 18, that it is he, it's God, who gives you the ability, the power to produce wealth. There'll be an accounting for that. I believe they're also going to be an accounting for the time that he's given to me. How we steward our time. Corinthians 10, 31. In the context of eating and drinking and talking about that. And there's some similarities to the Corinthians 10 passage and Corinthians 8. That some of the things that are talked about here in Romans 14. But the bottom line in 1031 is whatever you do. Do it all for the glory of God. We're going to come back to that as we close. Colossians 3.17, the same idea. In Ephesians 5.15 and 16 speaks of redeeming the time. Be wise and redeem the time. And then lastly, I believe that you and I are going to give account for our obedience to the Scriptures. You know, and, and here I was thinking of the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And how does he conclude the Sermon on the Mount? Talking about two different kinds of people. And both people hear the word. One of them hears and obeys. The other one hears and chooses to disobey. One of them is called a wise man. The other one's called a foolish man. One of them builds on a rock and the other one builds on sand. You see, when you begin making a list of how you will give account to God, it should provide the necessary wake-up call out of your sleep to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Two questions, one statement of fact. 
evidence from the sure testimony of Scripture to support the statement of fact and repetition of that fact personalized. Each of you shall give account of himself to God. How does Paul conclude this part of the text? Look finally at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Verse 13, I believe, answers the so what question here in the text. In light of all these shared, so what? What now? Therefore, taking consideration all that's been shared here of late, what now? In light of the fact that we all shall stand as believers in Christ before the judgment seat of God, what ought we to be about amongst the body of Christ in the time that we have remaining? You see, I was thinking about this from a actions, fact, actions. It seems apparent from the scripture when you read it, there were actions that were being taken in the church. And what actions were they? Judging your brother. Showing contempt toward your brother. Those actions had been going on. Now Paul places this fact. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one. Personalize it now. Each one shall give account of himself to God. And now on the other end of the fact, there's an intended act. You see, there's actions that have been going on over here, which Paul is very quick to bring out and say, no, 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 stop doing this. And let me give you a good reason why you ought to stop doing it. The Word of God. And so in light of the Word of God, then let me give you the proper way. Let me give you the right action step for how now you are to walk. Action. Fact. I was just thinking about that in terms of the tech. Because you see, this is not a matter of just neutral bodies standing around doing nothing. No, these people had been acting. They've been doing certain things. But now they're being confronted by the word of God. And the word here from Paul is to stop it. Stop it. Stop passing judgment. Let us not judge one another any longer. Do you see that this has been going on? saying stop it but he doesn't end it right there he says but rather words okay look at the words so stop doing this let us not do this but instead or but rather okay now he's gonna instead of just pointing out what not to do how many of you like it when someone just says stop it stop it stop it don't do this. As opposed to someone giving you instruction and then on the other side of the instruction telling you how to do it. I enjoy that. I think all of us like to be led well in that way. And praise the Lord that the scripture is profitable not just for rebuke, but we see it's also profitable for correction. For bringing us back in that instruction and righteousness so that we might be equally equipped. So Paul does the very same thing here. He's not just saying stop it without any other 
way of looking at it, that any directional force of how then I'm, I'm to walk as a brother in the body, he says, no, let's stop passing judgment on one another and rather let's resolve this. And it's interesting, a little play on words here. When the text says, but rather resolve this, the word that's in the English, resolve, is actually the same word for judgment. So in other words, we could say it this way. He says in verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this or consider this. Let's judge this. What is it that we're to judge? And here's what he says. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. You know, one of the greatest tragedies in the church today is not the persecution that comes from the outside. And, and, you know, because, hey, that's expected and it's spoken of clearly by the Lord. He says, the world will hate you if you follow me. The world's going to hate you. The tragedy that I'm speaking of here in the text comes from the inside. Among brothers, believers in Christ, passing judgment on their brothers. The gavels are in hand. The gavels are ready. And we're quick to pronounce judgment. The action step that's alluded to here in Romans 10, 13, excuse me, in Romans 14, 13, I wrote that wrong. We passed up Romans 10 a long time ago. It's a springboard. It's a springboard for where Paul is headed in the remainder of this chapter. Extend love toward your brother who may be weak in the faith. Do not put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in your brother's way. You see, because Christ died for you. But he also died for others. And so be helpful to the brethren. Be about their best interests. Knowing they too are in the Lord. And you see how sad it is when a church where the name of Christ is exalted and yet operationally the parts are being selfish and are not exhibiting genuine love toward their brothers. This whole idea of of a stumbling block and a cause to fall. Paul says very clearly, do not put these things in the brother's way. But show love. How do we do that in the midst of difference? In the midst of those moments when you would like to operate differently. In, In situations where maybe you would like to say things in the flesh. You know, I was reminded of this yesterday. A team I was refereeing. This was the first. I'd never, ever seen this at this level of basketball. There was a team that was playing, a junior varsity team, high school boys. And it was like 23 to nothing after the first quarter. And it got worse. The halftime score was 40 to zero. Think about that 40 to zero. The game was over. By the way, they did score. But here's here's the interesting part of the story. In the second half, when they finally scored, the coach calls timeout. And I love this. I wish I had a video of this. Because you see, the coach learned something pretty quickly in this game. This particular coach was a varsity sports coach. He happened to be coaching the JD team in this particular moment. And he started out the game coaching like he would coach a varsity team. And he, all of a sudden, it took him one quarter to realize this is not a varsity team. And he 
he began instructing his players. And he began encouraging his players. And everything that came out of his mouth after the first quarter was very encouraging, even though they hadn't and when they finally scored in the third quarter, he calls timeout. He's got his hands up and he circles the troops and he brings them together. And now he's firing them up. Good job. And I thought about that in light of the text. And I told him after the game, I said, Coach, I appreciate what you did. I was observing what you did. And I appreciate it. Because it would have been very easy for you to use words and say things to get, just get upset, be critical. And I was thinking about that and how that applies so well to us here in the body of Christ. You see, sometimes there are things that other people, other parts of the body do that might rub you the wrong way. You might get upset. You might get frustrated. You might want to say something to them in a manner that you ought not. But in those moments, I do hope that you choose to operate not in the flesh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, and to come alongside and to be an encouragement. To be an encouragement from the Word. To remember the evidence that's been put forth in the Word. To remember your role and my role as a part of the body here at Hope in Christ Church. Well, that was powerful. That was powerful to see that. How a coach, outside, totally out. You see, the principle is what I'm looking at here. It's the principle of the matter. How you go about viewing, communicating with others. There's a way that it can be done. But there's also another way over here that's much more healthy. It's much more honoring to the Lord. You see, going back to that passage in Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do. I'm going to key on that. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And in asking this question, why is it such an important question? Why is that important? Why? why? Doing all to the glory of God. As you come to Romans 14 and you look at verse 13, why is doing all to the glory? Why is that such an important thing? And, And what does it mean to do all to the glory of God? Listen, listen to these words that, that for me personally were helpful and I share them with you, hoping that they too will be helpful for you from Mr. Jerry Bridges. He says, what then does it mean? He answers this question. He says, first, I desire that all that I do be pleasing to God. I want God to be pleased with the way I go about the ordinary activities of my day. So I pray prospectively over the day before me, asking that the Holy Spirit will so direct my thoughts, words, and actions that they will be pleasing to God. Second, that I desire that all my activities of an ordinary day will honor God before other people. And that's the principle of Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds. Now praise your Father in heaven. Think of it this way. If everyone you interact with in the course of an ordinary day knows that you trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, would your words and actions glorify God before them? He goes on and asks these questions. How much of my life do I live without any regard for God? How much of my daily activities do I go through without any reference to God? And in this particular book, he's speaking of these sins that we tolerate. 
He says, I believe that all of our acceptable sins can ultimately be traced to this root sin of ungodliness. And so he draws this this picture of a tree. We can think of all our sins, big and small, growing out of the trunk of pride. He sees sees this, this trunk being pride. But that which sustains the life of the tree is the root system. In this case, the root of ungodliness. It is ungodliness that ultimately gives life to our more visible sins. So you have the tree, you have the root or the trunk is the pride and and the branches and the things that come out of visible are those visible sins that manifest themselves in our lives. But really when we look at the root system, what's underground, why is it that pride becomes a trunk and out of that pride comes these sins? We see that there is something underground, something called ungodliness. And, And each of you seated here today may not think you're ungodly. But if we look at ungodliness and put a definition to ungodliness as living life without regard for God, how many of us in our lives have been ungodly? You see, church, loving God contributes to a greater sensitivity, a greater compassion, a greater heart to love my brother rather than judging my brother. The Bible says to train yourself to be godly. There's work to be done. And you see, as I'm working on my relationship with the Lord, as I'm growing in Him, as I'm being sanctified in Him, that is only going to help me be able to do the very thing that's called for me to do from the Scripture in Romans 14, 13. Stop passing judgment. And let's start acting in a right manner. Let's be sure we're not putting down stumbling blocks for our brother. Let's be sure we're not causing our brother to fall. And church, the more we draw near to the Lord, the more I believe we get this one right. I do believe there's a connection between our love for the Lord, our drawing near to the Lord, our intimacy with Christ, our love for the Word of God. I believe that these are connected. So we have these two questions. We have the statement, fact, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul gives evidence from the Scripture. To back that up. And then he repeats that statement of fact. But this time in verse 12. He personalizes it. He narrows down that focus. Helping us to see that you and me. In Christ we too. Each of us shall give account of himself to God. And then the wonder of it all. Is that he doesn't just leave us guessing and wondering what now. But he tells us exactly what not to do. And then he gives us the right action step in how we can go about as a believer in Christ to please and glorify and exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful picture, church. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, your word is so rich. I thank you, Lord, for the instruction in your word. I thank you, Lord, for your church. I pray, Lord, that today as we've opened your word, I pray, Lord, that your truth has gone forward. I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we would endeavor to go from the scripture as an intellectual exercise Lord, we would desire to take it further and to obedience, to translate that into living, to walking. May we continue to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we take in your word. May we then desire also, Lord, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in the flesh. For, Lord, we know from your word that walking in the flesh, we cannot please you. Father, as we've talked about here this morning... I pray that it would be our our desire, our goal, our objective to please you in all things. To give you glory in all of our life. Wherever we may be, in whatever circumstance we might be in. That, Father, we would be reminded of you. That we would think of you. I'm so grateful, Lord, you've given us your word to not only correct us, not only rebuke us, but, Lord, to also instruct us and correct us on that path of of righteousness. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans and, and, and not leaving us to figure this out on our own. But, Lord, you've given to us your truth. Now I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit we would walk in that truth, that as a body we would walk together in that truth. That as a body, every single one, every single part of the body here at Hope in Christ would desire to be pleasing to you. And as we desire collectively to be pleasing to you, I pray, Lord, that Hope in Christ Church will be a place where the love of Christ is exhibited. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to put away the gavel. To understand that you, Father, are the judge and that you have granted your Son to be judge over all. May we be content with that, Father. May we not look for opportunities to raise ourselves up above others. But, Lord, may we rest content in you as being our king, being our Lord and sovereign. And may we then desire to the best of our ability as you enable us by your spirit to walk in the truth that you've set forth for us. Thank you so much, Father, for your word and for that instruction. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.